I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. On today's episode, only 700 people have had the honour to wear a lapel badge denoting them as an Australian senator. Not many more than have worn cricket's baggy green. Hinch was one of them, elected as leader of Darren Hinch's Justice Party in 2016. In this edition of That's Life, he discusses the good, the bad and the ugly of politics. Darren Hinch, welcome to another episode of your own podcast. Thank you, Tony. It's, um, yeah... It'll be fun today because we're going to talk politics. Well, I thought today we'd talk about your days in the Senate. Now, uh, being a, a member of Parliament uh, in Australia is, I guess, a bit like being in the Australian cricket team. It's uh, a privilege that not many people get, although is it as much fun as being an Australian test cricketer? I think it's more fun and it's just as much of an honour. Ironically, you mentioned that because there have only ever been 700 senators in Australia's history. And that's about the same number, give or take a few, as have worn the baggy green. And the first day they put their cap on is like the day you're given your little gold medallion by the, uh, by the, by the, the black rod. You know, and you're given a gold medallion and a little thing to put on your lapel that says, I'm a senator. And that little pin on your, show, on your lapel is the only identification you ever use in Canberra. You don't present a pass. You don't do any... They must study all of all the bloody faces of the new senators so they won't challenge you when you come in and uh, and that's it look it is it was a huge honor it was something i never ever expected i mean i've bagged a lot of politicians over the years over the decades um i never ever thought i'd be one it wasn't a long-term ambition people have often said when i was doing hinch on television and radio oh you should get into politics you should go to canberra and i used to think to myself well you know i couldn't be a liberal because sometimes they've like Silver Spoon, and I couldn't be Labor because sometimes they were too left and also too unionised. Um, but then when it came up, and uh, and I, I loved it. I mean, I, I was, oh, I'll tell you now, I was shattered when I didn't get re-elected. I was well, we'll, we'll talk about the, because uh, really by rights, senators are elected for six years. Yeah. Uh, which, which would mean you would still be still sitting be in the parliament right yeah. now. There's a difference though. When there's a double dissolution, when they th- don't throw out half the Senate, they throw them all out. It's called a double dissolution, a double D. Um, I don't worry, I checked it out. Um, we didn't go to court over it because it, it would have been a waste of money and time, their time as well. When there's a double dissolution, it's up to the Senate to decide who gets three years and who gets six years, right? Um, I have a plaque, I had a plaque on my Senate wall from the Australian Electoral Commission that showed the order in which the first six senators were elected for six years in that election in 2019, 2016. Um, and number six was Darren Hinch. But then the Senate had a, a session and Labor and Libs got together. And as, as they're right, it's dirty politics, but it's politics. And they voted that Hinch should lose his six years and should be given to Scott Ryan, who went on to become president of the Senate, and I should be given three years. And in New South Wales, the deal was the other way around. Labor got the deal where Lee Rhiannon from the Greens had her six years reduced to three. And uh, I think it was Deborah O'Neill got six years for Labor. Um, I remember saying to the Prime Minister, it was Turnbull at the time, I said, you were crazy. 
You should have given me the six years and promised your liberal man top of the ticket next time around so he'd be guaranteed nine years, or she. And Turnbull said, oh, I didn't think of that, but by then it was too late. So I did get elected for six years, but the Senate has the right to do this. And the other bit of dirty pool in it that I remember was that I, about, we got about 10, 12 votes opposing the change. At me, a couple of independents, and the Greens. And it was very good the Greens backed me. But I knew uh, that I'd seen a few minutes before Richard Di Natale from the Greens walk over to Matthias Cormann, leader of the government in the Senate, and say, you got the numbers, you don't need us? And Corman said, yeah, fine. So they could vote for me and look like they were being lovely people when they'd already checked out to make sure that I'd lose. Darren, when did you decide that you wanted to uh, run for the Senate? Well, it was after, sounds funny, after the last time I was in jail, um, I came out of there and we started a th thing called, um, uh, we did a walk for justice to support Daniel's Law and the idea of getting a national public register of convicted sex offenders, which I've pushed for about 10 years. And uh, people were saying, what are you going to do next? So we had the Just Child to Justice Walk. We did, a, I think, about 180, 200 Ks in 10 days. Well, I, I remember driving behind the caravan trying to get to work. You were driving, <laughs> I think, down Rathdown Street in could, Melbourne. Could, uh, yes, we did. But at the very end, we, we came. Wh we where went, did you go with that We, walk, we, we went from, uh, from Langy Cow Cow Jail, from outside the gates of where I'd been incarcerated, and we walked to the steps of Parliament House in, uh, in Melbourne. And the last leg um, was, um, was, was down um, from the city, and we presented um, something like more than 100,000 signatures from people in, in volumes of paper of, of paperwork saying that we must have this Daniel's Law. Uh, Explain to me Daniel's Law. Okay. Daniel's Law is named after Daniel Morecambe, uh, who was a young boy, the son of uh, Bruce and Denise Morecambe, who was killed years ago, uh, disappeared, taken up, snatched off the street and murdered. And for 13 years, they didn't know where he was. The man who killed him had already molested and raped a young boy in Darwin, taking him away from a, a caravan park and left him to die, which he didn't, in a burned out car. Uh, that man um, has since been charged, convicted and is in jail in Queensland. And now if there had been what I call Daniel's Law, if it had been a public register of convicted sex offenders, his name would have been out there. People could have been alerted to him. He was supposedly an upstanding member of the local church by this stage. Um, and I pushed for it and pushed for it. The first stage we got was only very small, but it was worthwhile. Was I got a part after seven months in the Senate? I got a passport ban brought in so that convicted pedophiles could not go overseas on what I call child rape holidays in Asia. Um, and I was put onto that before I was even elected. No, sorry, before I was even sworn in. I was my first job as a senator elect was to give a speech to the Melbourne Press Club which is quite weird anyway, with all your ex-colleagues, suddenly you're Senator Hinch. Um, and Michael Rowland from the ABC was the MC. And as I got up to speak, he gave me a thrust, a handwritten note into my hand. And he said, oh, Darren, do you know Rachel Griffiths, the actress? I said, yeah, we've been friends for a long time. He said, well, I talked to her this morning and told her I was meeting you, and she gave me this. And it was a handwritten note from Rachel saying something like, how come, first of all, she said, I'm glad you're alive. Um, she said, how come... If you're declared bankrupt in Australia, you're banned from travelling overseas for seven years. But if you are a convicted sex offender, there's no such restriction. And I read it, and I read it out loud to the people at the press club, and I said, I don't believe that can be true, 
but I'll check it out when I get there. And I checked it out, and it was true. And 800 convicted sex offenders went overseas each year, including more than 400 to Cambodia and the Philippines and Vietnam on these child rape holidays. And if you ever go there, as I have, to Cambodia, you see these fat middle-aged men with 9- and 10-year-old kids. Uh, and they're not their nephews and nieces. So anyway, with the support of um, Julie Bishop, I must admit, uh, I pushed and pushed every time I, uh, I was uh, in meetings with, cap- with cabinet members or the PM of the day, uh, I'd push for this idea. And after seven months, we got it into law. We got the Passport Act amended and got into law and thought, you can achieve something. And Bishop said, that's the fastest thing I've seen achieved by a first-term senator ever. And from that, of course, the main that was a start. The main issue, though, was to get this public offender list in. Uh, now, they've had it since Clinton in, um, in the US. It was called Megan's Law and uh, little Megan Kanker. And when I was on Sunday night, I went to Hamilton, New Jersey, and met her parents and interviewed her parents and talked about it. And I met up with police officers and people and realised they've had it there since 1996. And it's worked. And there it's even more than what we're pushing for here or can get through here. There they have the, the, um, the photographs and the home address and a photo of the sex offender convicted. And they have um, details of his crimes. And I went to Texas as part of the story and met up with Sarah Monaghan, who was um, the victim of, of Hughes uh, during the ha- filming of Hey Dad for Channel 7 uh, at Robert Hughes. Anyway, um, she said to me, Darren, look at this. She pulled out a mobile phone and she said, look, if you punch in, a mo- say, motels, up will come 10 little flags of motels within, say, a five-kilometre radius of where you are. She punched in sex offender and up come these flags of all convicted sex offenders in her area. And we actually drove past one of their houses because we had his home, his name, his address and everything. And uh, and there was the, um, the the ute parked out the front and the flag on the veranda and uh, the lawns well cut. But you knew, and the thing was there, she knew and neighbours knew not to let their kid chase a puppy in there, which is the way that um, that uh, Megan was, was, was kidnapped and killed. Um or you don't you trick and treat there on Halloween, things like that. Now, in Australia, P- Peter Dutton worked hard on it with me and for me. We couldn't get it through like that, but he got through Cabinet a start, and that is it is now official government policy to have a public register of convicted sex offenders. It'll have their photo. It won't have their home address, but it will have their postcode. Now, I learned compromise is a big word you have to look at in Canberra and that's a start uh, it's not perfect but it's a start because if you see somebody hanging around your kid's school you could go on that register and look at it and say that looks like so and so that looks like him and you can call the cops now because at the moment when we were campaigning during the childhood justice walk I was in uh, Ballarat or Bendigo Ballarat I think it was and uh, the local police chief walked with me he said, I'm not meant to, but I feel strongly about this. So he walked, as often several hundred people did on any given day. And on this occasion, he told me, he said, we've got 125 convicted sex offenders in my area. He said, if I saw three a day, I couldn't see them all once a month. So we have to hope they'll self-report if they change your address or change their car 
or have any circumstance. He said, so we, we can't, it doesn't work. And I had a senior police officer before he became as high as he's got. He shall remain nameless, Graham Ashton. He told me once that um, the talk about publicly about the private register that they have now is really PR because, as I just said, they can't police it all. Um, and it's, it's more just to give us some satisfaction. Now, I... I used to go out with a woman who was an ex-police officer and in Sid, from Sydney, and she often had access, control of the register. And she said, Joe Blow, cop in uniform, can't just go to the register. He has to make formal applications and this and this and this can take ages. But it is on its way. As I said, it's not perfect, but it's a start. And people, I know people say, oh, what about their civil liberties? And what about their privacy? And I've said before, I have this quaint idea that when you rape an eight-year-old, you sort of lose your, your rights to privacy and some of your civil rights. And you, you're entitled to know if, so, if a sex offender lives next to you and your kids. You have a right to know that. Now, in America, it goes even further. And, and every, every state, Clinton made every state sign up to it. If in America, you're buying a house in an area and the real estate agent knows that a pedophile is living next door, they are compelled by law to tell you. And I went to Florida and went down to one of the counties there and travelled around with a local police chief. And he, they have prisoners in the local jail make these big red signs out of metal that they hammer into the front yard that says, so-and-so with a name, convicted sex offender, lives here. And I said, well, what if they... I said to this police chief, what if they just tore the sign up and threw it away? He said, we just make bigger signs. <laughs> But so it, it, it will come here. Um, I know a lot of people feel passionate about it. And that Daniel's Law was why we formed the Justice Party. Um, I realised I was getting nowhere on the outside. So I thought, let's try from the inside. Let me stand. And I, I never dreamed I'd stand. But that was the, ma the main platform, Daniel's Law, which I didn't call Daniel's Law. Then I just called it that after I got into, into office. Um, but it was the thing stemming from the, the, the Jail to Justice Walk and my going to jail over fighting suppression orders and contempt of court over naming naming some of the worst sex offenders in this country who courts protect. I mean, I remember one day on the steps of, I think you introduced me, on the steps of the parliament, there were like 4,000 people there and I named two uh, of the worst child offenders in, in Victoria, repeat offenders, and... About 3,999 other people shouted their names as well, but only one got convicted and jailed. Darren, you're very passionate about this, and I can understand the passion because the effect it has on people to be sexually malevolent, you know, and to be killed and the families that have to deal with that. Where does this passion come well, the for weird you? Thing, the weird thing is, um, I've said before, I mean, I was molested by a family friend when I was about nine Okay, uh, at a party at my parents' house. Uh, I can tell the story because it was 1953. And I remember that because it was the year the Queen was crowned. And in New Zealand, where I was at the time, uh, they put out a crown, a, a coin, a crown, two half crowns, to commemorate the Queen's election. Uh, sorry, elevation. And I was somehow got hold, of, got hold of two of these, or one of these, my father gave me one, and I don't know how I achieved the outcome of the other one. And I had it out showing it to the guests at the, dinner, at the party, you know, as kids did, showing off. 
they just got this magic thing, a crown. And uh, and uh, the, as the night wore on, we all went to bed, the kids, and this family friend uh, who'd returned from a holiday in Australia, I thought he was Australian, but he wasn't. He was a New Zealander whom I suspect had been banished to Australia for earlier crimes. I couldn't prove it. Anyway, he came into the bedroom and offered to buy the crown. And... Uh, and my mother said to me, now, you know, if you sell it, that's a contract, that's a deal, you won't get it back, you can't change your mind. And I sold it, he gave me something like a, a one pound, which was, like, which was like 40 times what our pocket money was a, a week. Anyway, later in the night he, he came back into the room and started fiddling with my uh, had a little portable gramophone thing and he was sitting there asking me to show him how it worked, etc. And, and then he sexually assaulted me. And you were how old? Nine. And my elder brother was asleep in the same room. And apparently he'd, I found out later on, he'd tried something with my older brother and had pushed him away and, and then feigned being asleep. And then my brother sort of pretended to wake up and the guy left the room. And I, mortified, rigid, I climbed into bed and he started questioning me, saying, what happened, what happened? I said, nothing, nothing happened, nothing. And in the end, he called my mother. No, I said, I yelled out, I said, I want my mother. And mum came into the room and I started crying. And I said, I want my crown back. I didn't want this man to have anything to do with me. I said, I want my crown back. And she started, was- she, she started to lecture me about it. And then, oh, you made a deal and da da da, your word's your word. And then Desmond suddenly said, Mum, something, the man did something to Darren. And then it all blew up. I remember I, I was told like years later that my dad, he ran out down the front, out the front gate, and my dad had to be held down by two of his friends, um, so he didn't beat him up. Uh, and next day, he was escorted to the airport and left town. Years and years later, when I discussed it with my family, I said, "Why didn't you have him arrested and take him to court?" And they said, as many parents do, we did it to protect you. We didn't want you to have to go to court. We didn't want this. And he was gone, left town. And I said, yeah, but he's probably doing it at some other kid in some other town now. You know, Probably that's why he went to Australia in the first place. And, uh, and that was that. But the point I was trying to make was, I don't believe that affected me. I didn't mention it to anybody. When I was editor of a Sydney Sun, I didn't run a campaign against child molesters. So I didn't, I just treated it like any other story. Whether it was newsworthy, you did it, and it wasn't. And it wasn't until years later, on 3AW, when uh, a woman from Geelong called me up, and I would talk, this issue had come up, I guess, with Bob Montgomery, a resident psychologist, for he did an hour a week, and she called up and she said, oh, Darren, I'm 42. She said, I was molested as a little girl. It's affected me forever. It's affecting my sex life with my husband, and I, 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 I don't know what to do. He doesn't know. And I said something like, look, trying to make a point, you can get over it, you can live a life, you can put it to one side and still live a life. And I just said, en passant almost, look, I was molested when I was nine, and it hasn't affected me, I know it affects people in different ways, but I don't, it hasn't affected me, and I've just run my life. And that made the, 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 the glossies, you know, Hinch was molested, and da-da-da-da. And then the follow-up to that was when, then Pamela Graham came to work for me, as an investigative reporter from Channel 7, and the Glennon case broke, and she was right up to her neck, digging information out about Glennon. And when we broke the story about Father Michael Glennon being a pedophile priest who'd raped a girl when she was about nine or ten and gone to, he'd gone to jail over it, was still running this camp for kids 
in Lancefield, um, that made me suddenly the lightning rod for this, these issues, and it's remained ever since. Well, we're now 30 years past all that, but you were the first person to be talking about those issues. Now, you know, we've had the Catholic Church sort of brought to account uh, and it's uh, uncovered what's been going on all around the world. But from my memory, you were the first person yes. to be talking about you know, these issues. A lot of Australians wouldn't have known what a pedophile was, let alone how to spell it. Um, nobody talked about it. And to take on the Catholic Church and go after Father Glennon. Uh, and I remember um, on, one, on one occasion, um, I was at a function at Parliament House um, for Australia Day, I think it was, and I was a handbag. I was Jackie Weavers. She was on the Australia Council and I was her handbag. And at that time, I remember John Kane as Premier, who's a very avuncular and lovely man, but he was, I remember him poking me physically in the chest saying, you're going to jail. You're going to jail. Remember your priors. You know, and that came as a, a, a bit of a shock. Um, but it was, it was at a time, and that's what annoyed me when I still hear it now, uh, with people, almost the George Pells and the Peter Hollingworths of this world, saying things were different back then. Times were different back then. I said, no, they weren't. I was hammering 30 years ago. You know, saying there are pedophile priests. I mean, I remember people thought I was a cowboy. But before I went public on uh, on Glennon, I went to the Premier. I went to the Police Commissioner. You know, I went everywhere I could. And they all said, oh, he's before the courts. Leave it to the courts. And I said, he won't be in court again for another six months. He's on bail. He's the only adult running a, a little camp for kids, you know. And uh, there's a funny sidelight to it in the end, a, a postscript that um, years later when I had the farm up at Mount Macedon and Saturdays were wonderful, country people leave you alone, you know, and you'd wear your gumboots and your flannel shirt down at the local supermarket at Woodend on a Saturday morning to do your shopping. And I was coming out of the, out of the greengrocers and I had an armful of fruit and veggies. And a woman came up to me and said, can I talk to you? And I thought, oh, I'm a bit busy. Never, okay, so I put the fruit down and I said, yes, yeah, sure. And she said, I've been coming down here a lot of weekends hoping I'd bump into you. And I said, well, okay, why? She said, my daughter was the nine-year-old, was Glennon. And after he got out of jail, he tried to make her the villain. He was telling all the other kids that she'd made it all up, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, I just want to tell you, she's now 21, and she's married, she's having a baby. And it wasn't until you went to bat for her that she thought, somebody believes me. And then you went to bat and you went to jail. And she said it changed her life completely, which is a great postscript to the, to the whole Glennon stuff. So uh, that's where the passion comes from. That's why you wanted to go into the Senate. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me about the first day. I mean, everybody, the politicians make their maiden speeches. Yeah. Uh, your maiden speech. My maiden speech. Well, tell me ma about it, that. It made history because I found out it was the longest maiden speech in history. Apparently, um, you're meant to talk for 20 minutes and mine went for 47. Um, and it was a big crowded room and some of my friends were there and all the politicians. Um, and I just laid out what I, what I felt and how I got there, etc., and how, how we formed the Justice Party. Um, you know, I, the Justice Party uh, sort of started late 2015 but really it finally got official in March 2016, just before they announced the election was going to be held. Um, 
Ironically, I, I went and registered the name the Justice Party. And the man called the preference whisperer, Glenn Drury, who's a political expert, um, I had a meeting with him, a coffee with him. And I, was, I proudly said, well, I've registered the name, it's now the Justice Party. He said, well, you'll never win. I said, why not? He said, the Justice Party. He said, justice this, justice that. He said, there's a lot of pla places with the name Justice in it. He said, you've got to call it Darren Hitch's Justice Party. And I said, well, believe it or not, despite my alleged ego, I said, I don't want to do that. I mean, uh, this was before Clive Palmer, but it was after Pauline Hanson. I said, I don't want to be Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Darren Hitch's Justice Party. He said, well, you've got to, or you, you just you won't win. So I came home that night and I said to my goddaughter, um, Ellie, I said, well, um, look, I shouldn't ask you this, but you voted for the first time at the last election. Who'd you vote for in the Senate? And she said, well, I didn't know anybody. She said, there were about 50, 60 names there, and I didn't know a thing. So I just looked up and down and down about, and I suddenly saw the Animal Justice Party. And I thought, I like animals, so I voted for them. <laughs> so I went back to the next day and changed the name to Darren Hitch's Justice Party. And, and Drury said, look, it's like calling yourself cornflakes when your name is Kellogg's. Everybody knows who you are, and they see your name, and they know what you stand for. They know you won't take any bullshit. You know that you'll push the causes. I mean, who's looking after the children had been a slogan on radio and television for 20 years. And he said, you've got to do it. And that's what we did, and I got elected. I, I believe all of the senators, when they get elected, they go to what you call Senate school. Yes. So uh, you went to Senate school. I what, did. What's that like? What well, do you learn? We had the first time been in the classroom since I was 15, and here I am over 70. Uh, the oldest senator ever elected, as a matter of fact, I found out later. Uh, and I will be again if I get elected in, uh, in 2021, next year or the following. It'll be late 2021 or early 2022. And somebody said to me, oh, you're too old. My friends say you shouldn't mention this story. They say, you're too old. You're too old. You can't do it. And I said, hold on. I'm younger than Joe Biden. I'm only a few years older than, than uh, Trump. I said, by the time the election comes around, Biden could be president. I hope he is, and I could be senator again. So the, the age, the, I hope the experience works, you know. Um, I remember when Ronald Reagan, well, I was reading this the other day again, I'd forgotten it. When Ronald Reagan, during the debates, they tried to pick on him for being so old when he got elected. He's going for re-election. They said how old he was, and we didn't know he had the start of Alzheimer's. But anyway, somebody raised a question about his age, and Reagan, very droll, said, I'm not going to make an age, not going to make age an issue in this election. It is not fair for me to talk about my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> <laughs> and the audience roared and he just turned it around completely. But Senate school was, was fascinating. Um, you learned a lot about everything, about the, how things worked. I mean, we went back to the, I mean, it was very serious stuff. We went back to the Magna Carta to see how we got from there to here. Um, and I, I, look, I found being there amazing. I, in my last book, um, Hinch versus Canberra, I did the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I put like two hundred words or less about the top twenty movers and shakers in Canberra. And I came to the conclusion that the three people I trusted most, in, and I mentioned in my first book, were uh, Matthias Corman, who was then finance minister, um, uh, Stephen Parry, who was the uh, president of the Senate from Tasmania, and Penny Wong, the Labor leader in the Senate. Since then, I'm writing the next book, and I've now got The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly revisited, um, un uncut. Parry's wiped because he sat 
illegally as president under Section 44 when he knew he was probably dirty and sat there on with the connivance of um, and our ambassador to the United, United Nations. It was... Um, um, can't remember. Anyway, um, and, and I think Matthias, I think probably our High Commissioner to um, to uh, London, I think George Brandis probably also knew too. Um, they and they told him to sit tight. Well, he handed up people like Fiona Nash to the High Court, and uh, Mitch Fifield. Sorry, I just name slipped my mind. He handed up other people to the High Court when he was dirty, so he's off the list. And Matthias Corman, whom I trusted more than anybody, we did a lot of work together uh, in the crossbench when we were negotiating with the government over getting bills through or amendments through. He, the day before he knifed Malcolm Turnbull, he appeared in the courtyard with him when we all suspect now that he was he used to walk or run every morning with Dutton. We think best close friends. We think he was Dutton's numbers man all along. And that really rocked me. The only one of the three who still holds up in there is Penny Wong. But sadly, as she's leader of the Senate, but sadly, she'd make a good Prime Minister. But Australians still won't vote for, I think, a female, lesbian, Asian woman even if she would do a great job. so But I, but for trust and sticking to their word, I, I knew if she told me something, Labor's going to do this, they'd do it. If I told her, I'll vote with you or I'll vote against you, I wouldn't waver. You saw other crossbenchers who changed their minds overnight, you know. Pauline Hanson was someone you sat in the uh, Senate with. Jackie yes. Lambie was another one you yes. sat in the uh, Senate with. Well, Tell Pauline me about Hansen, those two well, people. Pauline Hanson and I, um, Jackie's improved this time around since her forced... Exit under Section 44. I mean, I was the one they went after first under Section 44 because I thought being a New Zealander, as a Perth lawyer, I thought being a New Zealander, I wouldn't have done it and being a journo. And in the end, I was the only one left standing. About 14 or 15 were found to be illegal. And I made sure before I got in there, I made sure that New Zealand cancelled my New Zealand citizenship. I hadn't used it. I'd become an Australian citizen in 1980. I didn't even know what my New Zealand, old New Zealand passport was. But anyway, so I got there. And Lambie has improved in that forced an, uh, exit. Um, Hans and I had a weird relationship. Um, we, didn't, we were never friends. We didn't get on that well. But we could negotiate on issues if we had to. But she, I think, contributed to my loss of the Senate because we had this perfect storm on sunrise with me and David Koch and Pauline Hanson. It was the Monday after the Christchurch massacre. Now, normally Pauline, I say perfect storm because normally Pauline would be in Ipswich on, on an outdoor camera. I'd be in Melbourne in the studio and Koshy would be in Sydney. On this day, I was in Sydney, perched up in the little newsroom and got a call saying, come down to the studio with Koshy. I was like, okay, that's unusual, okay. And suddenly into the, into the room walks um, James Ashby, her manager or PR man and, uh, or strategist, and Pauline. It was the first time the two of us, had, I said as we walked to the studio, this is the first, we've never been on the same set together. And I, to make the perfect storm, Paulie, it was a, Fraser Anning had just come out, there was appalling comments about the massacre and Muslims, and there's a move afoot to censor him in the Senate. And I asked Pauline, would she vote for the censor, or she said she'd abstain. But it looked like, um, Kosh, I must admit, pointed the finger and invaded her space. But it looked like two men, middle-aged men or older men in suits, berating a vulnerable woman. When in fact, Pauline is a is a party leader who many times would talk over me when we did our weekly sessions and talk me down. But on this occasion, it looked bad, and I received more hate mail over that than any issue in my life. 
Darren, sitting in the Senate, seeing it firsthand from the inside, did it change your view of politics uh, and what politicians changed, do? It changed my views to a degree. This will sound laughable to some people, and I've been guilty of it myself. Politicians work much harder than you think. Uh, you've got to be across everything. You've got to be across everything. Um, I mean, I have to... Law and order was our issue, but I had to vote on the uh, on the Gonski education bills. We had to look at um, changes to the Child Care Act and things like that. Uh, I did manage to show some power that um, I was the only person, the woman in this transvaginal mesh scandal, which I've always said was the biggest medical scandal in Australia since thalidomide, which caused deformed babies. Women were, were implanted, without their knowledge often, with a polypropylene mesh which was designed never to come out. And it was with, they had prolapses, organ prolapse, usually post-pregnancy. It was designed never to come out. And it was sort of put in in a way that, I use a crude expression, like grapevines growing over wire netting around your chook house, try and get that out. And I had, we found out that, and I raised it in the Senate, managed to get a Senate inquiry meeting committee set up. I toured Australia taking uh, evidence from victims we found out they said only, you know, 15, 20,000 victims. You know, I had women at our public hearings who couldn't sit down. I flew to Sydney before the committee, committee and sat with a young woman, 29-year-old, and she'd come in from Cronulla. And she, after about 20 minutes, she looked like she couldn't sit comfortably anymore. And she said, I've got to go. I said, I said I've come in from Cronulla. I said, do you want a cab charge to go home? She said, no, I'd rather take the train because I can stand up and it's less painful. And in one public meeting, there's women lying on the floor who couldn't sit for more than 20 minutes or an hour. And this pompous doctor was telling me that it worked in 85% of cases. Now, 15% is too far risk for me for, for victims in it like this. And, and since then, Johnson Johnson have uh, paid millions of dollars in class actions in America. And we've got hearings all over the place. Um, in Australia, it's, we've achieved something. It's now only a last resort. And this idea of implanting it and not telling people uh, has stopped. Um, it was, I mean, some of these cases are so shameful. Women being told, it's a day procedure, it's a walk in the park, you'll feel like you're a 16-year-old in two months' time. And these are women, women have suicided because of the pain. And they were told, many times, they were told it was psychosomatic. Their own doctors didn't believe them. So that was one of the worst ones. So we got that done. I came up very strongly with the Greens in favour of um, uh, medical marijuana. Um, some of the, the victories there, were uh, medical victories, were fantastic. And I know uh, party governments are still not doing as well as they should. Victoria has done pretty well um, on this. Um, I mean, there was a move, which I supported, to be growing medical marijuana on uh, Norfolk Island, um, the same way they grow um, poppies uh, for morphine in Tasmania. So it's an island, it can be controlled, but it was knocked back by the by the federal government. And, and for Norfolk Island, which has been struggling, it would have been a great industry they could have got going. So the other thing about the Senate, I learned, I mean, I used to tell this awful joke. I think it's awful now, I thought it was funny at the time, that why aren't public servants allowed to look out the window in the, in the mornings? Why? Because they have nothing to do in the afternoons, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty good. Now, having worked with them, and especially people in the secretariats who are the committee backups in the public service, who in the various cases, I was on the law, like the law, the law legal committee, and uh, and several others. They work bloody hard, 
and they actually write the reports that some committee chairmen don't even see. I mean, in my case, being a journo and an ex-editor, I, I wrote it along with the with the secretary, with the clerk, and uh, and then when they sent me the final draft, I went through it like a sub-editor to to correct it. So so you, you can achieve stuff. There are some politicians who are there because in, on the liberal side they're there because they were just a lawyer, uh, and on both sides, or because you're a staffer for some years. Uh, on the liberal side, the um, IPA, a lot of people came through there, that right-wing think tank, which for some, for some reason has a charity status, which I don't understand how. And on the Labor side, you come up through the union ranks, and if you're a union boss for a while, you're pretty sure you'll get in there. Darren, how, how much happens in Canberra that we don't know about, that the journalists choose to turn a blind eye to, you know, personal relationships, that sort of thing. I guess there's a bit of that from some journos. I mean, people said that about the um, Barnaby Joyce story. I didn't know about the Barnaby Joyce story. I didn't know, I never heard a rumour at all until it broke. Um, Yes, there are journalists who, 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 some of them who who think they'll get a feed from the government, the government of the day, if they sit on something like the old football thing, what goes on the road stays on the road. Um, I think that there's more transparency, especially now it's a 24-7 social media issue. It's very hard to hide stuff anymore. I mean, just recently, the thing about the, the 60 billion um, taxation uh, mistake uh, uh, during the um, coronavirus, uh, job seekers and job job makers, etc. Um, that the government was blown out of the, their, their argument that, oh, there was a, a thousand companies made a mistake was blown out of the water within 24 hours. I even sent a tweet saying, hang on, ScoMo announced $130 billion on March 31st, and the first form sent out to businesses wasn't until April 19. So it doesn't wash. You can't blame bad, bad form filling. Um, Somebody made the taxation department, or somebody in Treasury rather, not taxation, Treasury made the decision that it would be 6 million people would be affected and da da da. Then, when the forms started coming in, and they were wrong too, it reinforced their mistake. But it should have been picked up by somebody weeks and weeks earlier. So there are t- times now, because twenty four seven news now, you can't hide as much, and you can't you can't duck as much as they used to be able to. It is true they can keep some things hidden. That is true. But in, in general, I said earlier, people work much harder than you think. You know, um, and that's why I am keen to get back. I called my book Unfinished Business. And we do still have unfinished business. Um, I want to make sure that Daniel's Law gets through in the next session of Parliament. You know, it, it's, it's on the books. It's on official government policy. And I want to get that through. Um, there's always plenty of stuff. But it is exciting. I mean, it's very exciting. It is exhausting sometimes. And there's a, I will grant there's a lot of wasted time. Now, I'll let, get rid of one myth. When you're seen making a... Um, uh, a, a speech, especially at night time uh, in the Senate, and you're talking to, or you're talk, people see you on television talking to a, a raft of empty benches, even during the daytime. Well, that's true. What people don't realise is every senator has Parliament booming into his office on a specified channel all the time. I've got one ear to it, and if somebody's saying something I don't like, I can race back in and, and get seek the, the President's attention to, to blow it out of the water. But if you just sat in the Senate all day, you get nothing done. I mean, there's all the constituents work you're going to do. This you're working on legislation amendments with your own political advisors. I mean, I would sit. I probably sat in the Senate more longer than most people, 
I did fall asleep once and it was the opening day, unfortunately, and that I never lived that down. Um, but I, um, I sat there just so I could learn and learn more of the procedures and stuff and learn committee reports and stuff like that. So I, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I had the best seat in the house because I was right at the back and I looked straight down down the throat of the speaker, of the, of the president. So you had some cross benches and and the government on to my left, and you had Labor and the Greens to my right. And I didn't have to turn my head like a cricket match or a tennis match. I just sat and stared straight down. It was, yeah, and it was I, I quite enjoyed the fact that you were wearing a tie. For a man who in the 80s and the 90s vowed never to wear a tie, you wore a tie. And you know why? Shows you how bloody-minded I can be. When I found out that wearing a tie in the Senate was not compulsory, I decided to wear one. <laughs> <laughs> and I wore one, a suit and a tie every day because I, I, I thought it did look a bit more, re, look more respectful to the to the office. You know? I mean, I, I mentioned before when the um, when the the the, the um, keeper of the black rod gives you a little gold medal, which I've still got on my bench. Uh, it was so precious, and I carried that in my pocket every day I was a senator, whether it was a weekend and I was in my jeans or whatever. I carried it every day and I only took it out of my pocket and put it in a, in a, in a little velvet box uh, on July 1, uh, 2019 when, when, I, when I was officially sworn out, as they say. Well, Darren Hinch, only 700 people have got that little medallion. You're one of those people. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. Today. Thanks, mate. Talk again.